This is not going to be a six-hour podcast. This is not an Arby's. Episode 99, Console Crusade. EJ Olson, Nick Durham, Chris Billy Four. Last week, we decided we're going to do podcasts every week to just chat about The Last of Us. That's what we're doing, and what a doozy. Uh, you know, I even I went into this and I told Sarah like, "Here's what to expect based on the game, which the show has been pretty faithful to you so far." And I gave her the backstory on Bill, and well, anyway, that is not what I expected, and it was something. So I know Chris, you were antsy uh, to to chat about this. I think you said to me in a text that was ten out of ten without flaw. Yeah, I mean, it's like frame perfect to me, honest to God, that I, we we basically got like a short film about Bill and Frank, and when they announced like, oh, this dude's going to play Frank, I was sort of like, what? Like the guy we literally never see that he's like mentioned in the game, but is not a character. So I was like, okay, cool. So we'll get like a little bit of backstory and uh, uh, that'll be really neat. You know, maybe one of these like, uh, like cold open type things that they'd been doing. Um with the interviewer and then with the, uh, uh, the Indonesia, the section in, in Jakarta. Um, nope. Nope. They took a hard no. left turn at Albuquerque. So in the game, Joel needs a car battery, right? So that's the same. And then he, he knows the, this guy, Bill, but he's never been to his compound. So they go, he gets caught in one of Bill's booby traps. And then they go on this little mini quest to like find a battery that in the game, you, you gather that Frank and Bill had a falling out. And like Frank had stolen the car battery. So that's what kind of sets up that chapter of like running around trying to find the battery. Bill saves Joel. They find that Frank had killed himself because he had been bitten. And so it was sort of, it was subtly tragic. Sort of read between the lines. You find a note from Frank. It's not quite on the nose. The show just was like, yeah, like you said, we're just going to give you the whole fucking story. Yeah. In a vacuum was just, wow. Uh, I guess this was a bottle episode, episode three. More or less. Yeah, it, it totally was like I could see maybe some people being a little bit antsy about, OK, well, we just wasted an entire episode. But at the same time, it also is just another just another vignette, some nation of like the whole thesis of The Last of Us. So I found that to be very satisfying and totally as a solo experience was awesome and still actually developed Joel's character and re pre-established Joel and Tess's relationship as partners in an, in an apocalypse but yeah it was a really good i mean everyone memes about subversion of expectations and what that means as a as a creator but this was a good subversion of expectations where it added and changed but it didn't uh detract from any of the characters represented in the original piece of media let's talk about it in a vacuum on its own i think it can be evaluated pretty differently than than you know, not maybe not the same way as sort of the bigger picture, but we also don't have the full picture yet, so it's kind of hard to judge it as a piece of television. It's only episode three of twelve, but just as a standalone story, uh, and like you said, the the sort of this little vignette. Which, if that's the direction they go, and we get another one or two of those, like I would be pretty happy with that. Actually, like yeah, that would rule. I think they're going to do something very similar with Left Behind, the DLC. Right. So obviously all of the media leading up to this was cut in a way that you thought we like we were getting like we knew we were going to get like a little bit of the backstory. But 
it was kind of cut to make it seem like, okay, we're going to get what we expect from the game. Exactly. With the only really like principal shots being Bill aiming the gun at the end of the hole and there being a hole, which you just assume that's going to be either Joel and Ellie or just Joel, like a, their meeting in the first place, but it was completely different. Nick Offerman, who I've never seen do anything remotely dramatic. He was, wow. Chris, what do you think about Nick Offerman? I mean, he, he annihilated me. I mean, I was like... <laughs> I was absolutely like full on ugly cry, like keening through the last like 10% of that whole story. I mean, there's so much that, you know, I work with my, my, my acting students about like, okay, how do you, how do you move yourself into circumstances that aren't your own? And that, that first scene where he's got, where Frank is in the house and he's, he's, kind of trying to figure out like what to do with that. Like that there's this, this person here and him like trying, bringing the, trying to bring the food out and, and the setting of things down and he'd like the gun and, Oh, do I take up the gun? And it'd be one thing to play like, Oh, I haven't seen a person in four years, which is like a gigantic, like a monumental order to begin with. Uh, and it'd be another thing to, to play um, that he's been like a long closeted middle-aged gay man in uh, an era where somebody pointed out online that, you know, the outbreak was in 2003 and gay marriage wasn't legalized until 2004. So he literally lived his entire life in civilization, not being able to have someone who he could be married to as a life partner. Consider where he lives and presumably where he was raised you know, he's this doomsday prepper. Don't tread on me flag. Exactly. And it'd be one thing to play like all those things individually, but it was just like a perfect cocktail of all of them. Like he, he never let one be any more critical than the others, which is exactly like that's that's what a human is. is we're just this sum of, of our experiences. And I just thought he fucking nailed it. I thought yeah, the episode was funny. Like I found myself laughing a lot of times, which I think was like pretty clearly intended. Uh, it was it was poignant. Um yeah, the beats of of d- d- discovery, especially like late in the episode after we've, you know, met these guys. The fact that they and they totally stole this from Pig, and I'm glad they stole it because it's fucking effective of like cooking the exact meal with the exact wine and the exact placement of the dishes. The only thing that's different about the meal is that he's sitting next to him now instead of sitting across from the table. That fucking killed me. Even the small flourishes of him twisting the plate to be lined up the way he wants to, and then Frank twisting it back to the way he wanted it differently, like. It's a total like setup and payoff throughout the entire episode with like five, I think, time periods and just perfect vignettes and playing with expectations like having Bill comment that he's like getting old and Frank saying he likes how he's aging. And then to cut from that scene to the fake out of Bill dying. But it's not, you know, it's not like they don't hold it over you. It's not like a, hey, we we're going to fake you out. It's just like some shit is going down and like. You do you care about this character because you're being shown that this character Frank cares about Bill and is going to take care of him, and yeah, it's every scene is just perfect between them in the entire the entire length of the the episode. I appreciate that you know the the episode opens on Joel in the river and 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 he and Ellie are taking a break and they're about to go on this hike. So we do spend time with our main characters in this episode, despite really being about you know characters that are main characters will never meet. It started world building from the very beginning and used that world building to get us into that little vignette, but it kept building the world. So even though it was this bottle episode about characters who really are inconsequential 
you didn't need to know anything about what happened to Bill and Frank for Joel to get his battery so he and Ellie can resume their journey. But but it served two two functions that were really important. One, like I said, it was the world building. We were always learning a little bit more about what all of these characters are going through. And also, it was this reprieve from a very intense episode two. In the game, this is just like balls to the wall action, right? Like you get caught in the trap. This is the first time you meet a bloater. He's like hurling spore bombs at you and shit. Like it's very intense. This show can't just be set piece after set piece after set piece. Like you have to have these moments as a viewer or it's just, you're just going to burn out. And so to choose to take these characters and this part of the story and say like, if we just remove that chapter from the game, the end goal being Joel needs a car. If that remains the same, how does that affect like, you know, the arithmetic and it, and it doesn't change the story. You know, so to, to take that out and do something completely different with it and give us a look at these characters. I tweeted last night. I said the us in The Last of Us doing some heavy lifting in this episode. And it's an interesting <laughs> choice if they continue to do it. If, if this is the only episode we get like this, I think I maybe will be a little more bothered that it was just the one one off. Like, give me give me at least one more episode like this about a character who we aren't with the entire time. And I know, Nick, you said we're going to get, we know we're going to get the uh, Left Behind stuff, which was a great little DLC about, you know, Ellie and how she came to be with the, with the Fireflies and, and whatever. But yeah, I want at least another episode like this. And I think there's an argument to be made that like maybe that wasn't the wisest choice uh, to like leave our characters for, for that long. And I, I do personally sort of wish we could have seen Ellie and Bill with the banter, especially because Nick Offerman has the comedic chops and he showed them here very restrained. The government aren't all Nazis, <laughs> but they weren't before. <laughs> you mentioning at the beginning of the episode, it's starting with Joel and Ellie. And I found that to be a very interesting way to start that off because Joel presumes that Ellie is going to apologize but Ellie just turns it around on him and says, I, I won't be sorry for something that isn't my fault. And starting the episode like that and then moving on to basically an entire episode of Bill and Frank. And the story of this episode is about, you know, Frank says multiple times, this is how I love. I want you to love me the way I want you to love me. And that is just like the strongest foreshadowing in the world about so much of the story in The Last of Us. Oh, my God. And the inevitable choice that gets made i just thought that was a really strong sort of thesis statement and reflection upon the themes and even if it is not progressing the plot in a lot of ways the plot isn't important unless it's unless you have the characters to drive it having that sort of reflection having the the flashback scene of joel and bill at the dinner table you know outside having this like really awkward little lunch and then tess and frank are you know hanging out and having a great old time and even the little, the tiny world building of like them establishing, you know, it's really like sort of stupid that they would do it this way, but like them actually, you know, telling us that this is the establishment of their code of like playing 80s music if there's trouble. And that gets brought up in the first episode with Tommy, like listening to the radio and hearing 80s music and knowing that Tommy's in trouble. It's interesting that you say that because I don't, I don't think that's Tommy. I think, I think that is Frank and Bill. And I think that that's, that's what got me again after I had done, I was done like, you know, keening on the couch with Tiffany uh, after the end of the, you know, art film, Bill and Frank's excellent adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They get into the basement and the, uh, the eighties music is still playing. 
Uh, and Ellie's like, why didn't he shut the music off? And uh, Joel says something to the effect of, oh, he must have, uh, he must have never, never come back to like shut it off, basically, which to me said it, Bill turned it on before he cooked the dinner that he was like letting them know, like, we're going to die. Like that is the trouble is that we're, we're going to die together. And I was like, holy shit. Do you guys remember what month Joel and Ellie are in right now? Have they established that? And I just have forgotten early to middle fall, right? Yeah, we're still in fall. And they had, uh, they had died at the end of August. It was like the 29th. The letters dated 29 August. The offhand comment that Joel said was like, set a timer like if nothing it's like a lost scenario like if nobody does anything for a set amount of time then it just automatically would start playing right the the code music so i think it was like a two-week period or something where if nothing is done then something's a something is amiss and i i didn't i I didn't track the specifics quite quite that far uh which is some good sleuthing uh on your part but it's just enough for me to go like oh shit like that's what that was uh it was a great like foreboding sort of thing of the radio like clicking on and then a good moment of Ellie, you know, doing some sleuthing of her own. We're like, okay, this kid's like clearly capable. But then to come back and have it be this thing that is like so devastating also. Yeah, nice checkoffs gun at the end there too. <laughs> Literally. I can't not talk about it anymore. Like they did so many things in this episode that are so true to so many different parts of the game. Like some in like really obvious ways and some in ways that like I, I, I d- didn't really think about until later. Um, but little, little things like Ellie knifing the infected, like when she was like, had the switchblade at the beginning, I'm like, oh, great. Like, that's a nice little callback to like her, especially in The Last of Us 2, having the, you know, unbreakable clicker knife finally moving away from like breakable shivs. I was like, ah, oh, great. Like, that's a good little, that's a, a good little touch. And like a scavenging sequence where it like you'd never look for like Tampax in the game because you couldn't build a bomb out of it or whatever. Uh, but like, what would people actually be fucking looking for? Like that, that's, it's, it's great. And like chroming, coming every little corner, getting into the basement, even like this whole thing felt like it felt like, like one of the series of survivor notes from a specific area that they just like exploded upon that. And that was like one of my favorite parts about these games is like hunting for those and just getting the little, the little pieces of like, (laughs) what are the us doing? You know, like you, like you uh, said a minute ago, EJ of like all this stuff is happening and it's not interesting in a video game to get a 50 minute Bill and Frank short film, but you can do that on television and you can do it in a way that, as you said, Nick, like thematically resonates with the whole point of the show, which is making the difficult choices, which is how do you, how do you recover after everything's been taken from you? Is it possible to have a life that is beautiful in the face of all of this ugliness? Like having a, a garden, it's like, well, we're going to have garden parties now. And then they have a garden party. Like, and they can, <laughs> like it's entirely possible to do that. Like, I don't know. I mean, I just, it, it did we're gonna so make much. Friends. <laughs> yeah. We're going to, we're going to have some There's not friends to be had out there. I appreciated how the dichotomy between Bill and Frank as sort of, you know, Frank being the one that, you know, everything's been been taken away from this guy. He's presumably lost family, and he he was even in the QZ, uh, in, uh, wherever he said he was. and Baltimore, I think. Yeah, Baltimore. Yeah. And things obviously went down over there, so your mind goes like, you know, what exactly happened? And he stumbles upon 
Bill and and for him, he sees this opportunity to like, oh my God, I can like rebuild some sort of life. And then Bill, the guy who he didn't lose anything when the world went under. He gained everything in a way. He only gained, right. He he was prepped for this. I wasn't afraid until you got here, which holy shit, what a fucking line that is. And like, how, how true is that for all of us who have partners, right? Or like, you feel so much like such a great sense of security, but that also breeds such like a sense of potential fear where it's like, oh, like if this doesn't go like that's going to hurt like a son of a bitch. Like I'm I'm afraid now because, yeah, he could have lived lived forever and fucking ever by himself in that little town. And I, I like how that parallels Joel, you know, uh, initially with Tess. And, and we obviously see that at the end with this letter. And and Bill is saying, you know, use this and take care of Tess. That's what we're meant to do. And of course, that's a whole other conversation about how Joel probably sees himself as his failure. He couldn't save his daughter. He couldn't save Tess. But but the parallel between like Joel, the guy who lost everything, and Ellie, you know, she was born into this. Like she doesn't really know any better. So she obviously still has this naivete about her the same way that Bill kind of does. So seeing that dichotomy echoed in, in both sets of characters, I think is pretty interesting you know, I, I saw a lot of hand wringing online about. Obviously, you always have the dorks who get mad about all the the details because they just want to be mad, like that they saw two men making love, you know, and that just triggered the shit out of them. But like, they were complaining about like, you know, oh, Bill just went out shooting the doomsday prepper, shooting with no cover, and then suddenly this healthy guy got sick, and it was just like, you know, they you know, gasoline wouldn't store that long, even with some sort of stabilizer and just like all these dumb things to be mad at the episode because they just want to be unhappy about it. And while, like I said earlier, I think there's merit to like maybe taking a bird's eye view and saying, you know, was leaving our main characters for an hour, like the best choice, like maybe not, but in a vacuum, the episode was just so goddamn good that you're not really thinking about that when you're done watching it. I think they did intersperse enough because it wasn't like, 50 uncut minutes of Bill and Frank. Like you get the intro with Joel and Ellie, you get a little bit of flashback sequence of the start with Bill because of them walking by the death camp, basically yeah, of people getting murdered and dumped on the side of the road. And that was like the transition into the past. And then you get more Joel because of him meeting with Bill and Frank with Tess. So it wasn't like you weren't getting any sort of character development because you get a lot of strong character development for Joel in particular. I thought maybe the only part of this episode that I think didn't really service any of the characters was Ellie with the infected in the in the cellar. I don't know what that was trying to show. Was that was that just showing Ellie being a little freako? Like, I mean, yeah. Think about it. Going back to the first episode, the look she gives Joel when he beats the fucking he murders the the military officer. The way she's always asking for a gun, and then yeah, seeing her this morbid curiosity. And it's like, it, it almost could have been read as like exactly that, this curiosity. Was it this moment of humanity where she was like putting this thing that was a person out of its misery? Or was it this kind of disturbing, like, I'm going to kill this thing? Like, she's she's a little bit of a fucking sociopath, and as all yeah, kids it reminds are. reminds me of like stepping on a, a fish that's like stranded on the shore, you know? Like, it's not, you know, it's not close enough to a, a living being that you can actually relate to, but it's still like a weird disturbing kind of act. Like right. she didn't look like she was sad about doing it. She was just like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I don't know what to and make know, of it. I don't know what that's establishing yet because maybe there'll be payoff for that later. And they've shown that they're willing to set things up in one episode and pay them off in another. So I'm not 
worried about that. It was just like isolated. Everything else in this episode was like chef's kiss. And that was just like a weird thing. Uh, yeah, I wonder. It, it makes me wonder. I don't know. All kinds of all kinds of stuff came to mind. It was like, oh, this is like a control thing that you've you've been controlled for most of your life in in the canon of like the show and some of the, the timeline of like her and Fedra and everything. Um, which I, it feels a little different than it was, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm remembering incorrectly. Yeah. Like a sense of agency because of her just being passed along as being this payoff and not actually having, you know, choices and having come through like the two clickers in the historical museum in downtown Boston, where she was completely at the mercy of like Joel and Tess saving her or she was going to fucking die. And she was the one who alerted them in the first place. And then here's this thing that's crushed. It even had like the half flowered, uh, skull that it was sort of like on its way towards clicker status and it's like a yeah who's in control now motherfucker kind of thing I hope it's seeding the garden for Chekhov's gun as you called it and like is she gonna pop off at a bad time with that thing and it's gonna cause problems I don't know I don't know but it, it did make me kind of go what is what's going on here it's twofold it's a it's it's threading the needle showing her her personality and at first i thought it was just supposed to be to juxtapose joel's daughter and sort of the innocence she had and the fear with ellie and her sort of lack of reluctance you know she i don't know if found endearing was the right way to describe it but the way she was fascinated by joel killing the military officer everything they've shown about ellie is a they have to set her up to be competent to some degree, because we know that, you know, when we get to winter and, and Joel is going to be injured and she, it has to be believable that she's like literally capable of, of doing anything as a 14 year old girl, but also of the right like mindset. And this it's, and it's not necessarily cold and dispassionate, but that's why I think it was this morbid curiosity to survive in this world. You have to make these matter of fact decisions and you have to be a little bit cold and, like willing to do the difficult thing. And so I don't think it was strictly like, oh, I'm, I'm a little sociopath, even though she's shown some of those tendencies. I think it's less about her just being like a fucked up little freak, like you said, and more, this is just the, the hard reality of like a really fucked up situation. And they're showing that she is able to both handle it and is curious about this darker side of survival that she probably hasn't had to confront, you know, even at 14 years old, like, you know, when she saw Joel kill that guy, it was like, whoa, this is this is what it's like. You know, I'm really glad that we talked about this because this is now clicking into place in my head about they can do so much with this if they pay it off right with Ellie learning what it means to love. And that is protecting the ones you love with violence. And just look at the the rest of both the games. I was just fucking thinking that like Nick, get the fuck out of my head. Like I was just going the, uh, what they can do that again the first game can't because they didn't know that there was gonna that there was gonna be a second game the cynic in me was like yeah you always knew but also I, I I'm kind of inclined to believe that they were like we're gonna wait till we have the right script like the right the right like plot treatment you know what I mean um anyway that they can they can breadcrumb us in the direction of where she goes in the second season and it's greenlit it is now officially greenlit it is fucking happening um which means that. <laughs> we're going to have to reopen the conversation about what in the fuck are they going to do? 
uh, with that thing. I don't want to litigate that too much because they'll do what they'll do. And yeah, I, yeah. I don't, we, we've, we've litigated it plenty. I think at the end of the first season, maybe we'll have a better sense of it and we could, we could chat about it again, but I think we made like our thoughts on that clear. I don't want to do that every fucking episode because God knows it's just going to be chasing ourselves in circles forever. I need something to yell about. Yell about a career performance from Nick Offerman. Yell about like literally the best fucking work he's ever done. At least as far as I know, um, let, like yell about the best actor in a, you know, in a featured role in a limited series, Nick Offerman. Yell about like all the fucking Emmys this show's going to win. It's going to win like a billion Emmys next year. For real. It's going to be the, it's the moment. Like it is the moment we thought it was. I can't remember if it was Craig Mazin or Neil Druckmann who said this on the podcast uh, for episode three. But they said something that that disturbed me and it had nothing to do with this particular episode in its presentation but they said well if we had done the story we had adapted it more faithfully it would have been boring and that concerns me not because i'm disappointed they didn't do like oh you know joel getting hung up and bill's trap and the bloater and like bill saving them like what we got was 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 awesome it concerns me because I think that was a really silly excuse to give like at its core it's like oh craig mason wanted to do his own thing he wanted to change it and he pitched it well enough to like convince everybody else involved to change it. But to just be like, oh, it would have been boring if we had done this. I'm like, no, it would have been another awesome fucking set piece. I'm I'm glad that we we got the reprieve from from two pretty intense episodes. But it, it does lead me to think like, all right, what's in store for the rest of this show? We you know, we just got done last week talking about how wow, how faithful this is, despite its changes. It, all the changes have been for the better, how faithful it is. Neil Druckmann, you know, he's so close to it. He wouldn't let his baby, you know, be massacred kind of thing. And now I'm like, um, this, maybe Craig Mason kind of wants to change some things and who knows what else is lurking around the corner as, as far as changes. And despite this one having worked out splendidly, it definitely reeked more of, well, I wanted to change it because I wanted to put my mark on on this show. Which is a little concerning. Like you said, like you need to have that reprieve to make the set piece moments matter. And you can't just have every episode be bombast. And having a bloater seems like that wouldn't really fit in a TV show that's trying to have the emotional connection that this one's trying to have. No, for sure. So I could I could see there not being any sort of boss fights in this show. Like the closest we're gonna get is the the cannibal thing. Yeah. Right. And it's <laughs> probably and there is something to be said about um like in a game, they can put you in the same scenario over and over and over because that's the game. Every chapter more or less is the same thing. But we're not going to have another dark hallway, like a dark building with no. a bunch of clickers. Like that's, we've done that. That was episode right. two. Right. right. Yeah, I don't know. Obviously they could have adapted this in any number of ways. It was just, it was just the way he said it. Hey man, you could just say like, we wanted to do something different and thought this was more compelling. You could have just said something that more appropriate for television, like with the pacing, the vision that we had, you didn't have to disparage the original it's a bit cynical. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like D and D talking about game of Thrones and saying, Oh, well, you know, Daenerys just kind of forgot that blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that makes you, it makes you seem like you're incompetent. Yes. And that you are willfully ignorant and that you do not give a shit about your viewers. I don't know if I'm reading quite the same thing from that comment is quoted i do know that they're on record as saying like the show's not just going to be like a non-stop stream of violence because i i don't it think that be. that's 
well, what would what would be the point of adapting this game only for it to be that? Because like the pur- the purpose of a game is for the gameplay to move you into the narrative section. So you're doing gameplay most of the time. And the purpose of a TV show is narrative to move you towards like emotional impact and or catharsis or however the fuck viewers are going to feel about the end of this season. Like, I-, I think people who don't know the story are not ready. Like, I have to bite my tongue a lot around Tiffany where I'm just like, you have no clue where this is going but to the quote specifically kind of sounds to me like the treatment that neil Druckmann wrote up would have been boring and that craig said okay so we don't want to just do the section and you've kind of mocked something up that's like oh they get there and they like pal around with bill and maybe frank's there and he gives them the car battery and that he took that and extrapolated it into something that would be all of the things that we have said that this episode is, uh, and that's where they landed on. Cause that I, if it weren't for having the Chernobyl folks attached to this, and there's other people they could, could have had attached to this, but it weren't, if it weren't for having them attached to this and like Neil Druckmann was like the showrunner, like the sole showrunner, I would have a lot less faith in this project for a lot of reasons. Um, so I wonder if that's what's going on is that they are like, yeah, here's kind of kind of what I'm thinking, Craig, you know, this is, as you said, this is my baby. And uh, he was sort of like, nope, that's 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 not that interesting. I'm going to turn that up to 11 and turn it into something. Here's a 10 is. minute scene of Joel finding notes that Frank wrote about his tragic suicide. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> yeah. And and I I can only imagine. Here's Ellie finding some porn instead of some Tampax. Right. Ugh. So there are two things I want to touch on before we wrap up. And one of them is is let's go back to when we we were still with Joel and Ellie, and they are rummaging around the uh, was that an old gas station, gas station, Quick Mart, something like that. And we talked about it last last episode, but it's just awesome how they're able to take the essence of of those experiences from the game and really compress those into these little moments. You do the Leonardo DiCaprio meme when you're pointing at the TV, and you're like, I know that. But they don't overstay their welcome. They don't. They don't linger too much on it. Even to like the bit where she finds the Mortal Kombat arcade machine, which is obviously a, a, literally a moment from the game. But you know, it, it's so tied to her character. Like she's finding the comic books and the trading cards, and like you know, these relics of the past. I thought she was running for a comic book for sure, and then the camera yeah, flipped, right. and it's like, oh, it's the Mortal Kombat <laughs> machine, which also is setting up geared like totally bottle episode number two with Left Behind, right. But you're right. It's like it comes and then and then and then we're out of it. It's like this is a cash. I can't quite remember. It's been a couple of years, which is fucking funny watching him like fuck about trying to see which shelf he needs to move. Meanwhile, Ellie's like found a hidden room all by herself and like found some Tampax and found took care of that infected that was in the cellar, like had this whole ass adventure. And then we're just done and it's gone. Like we don't need to yeah. see them like turning the whole fucking place over for parts and rusty scissors and electrical tape. It makes me wonder what more we're going to get uh, off the top of my head. I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't even speculate, but like what aspects of the game have we not experienced in the show yet? Uh, Palette swimming pepper in. Well, yeah, we talked about that. It's going to happen. <laughs> there hasn't been any human enemies yet. And that was pretty uh, much the episode. start of that around this time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, di- I didn't watch I don't like watching the next time on and like the behind the scenes stuff. I always turn it off as soon as the credits start. So I don't, I don't really uh, want to spoil myself on that. 
but I mean, just pacing wise, I mean, as soon as the episode ended, Lindsay looked at me, she's like, so next week is going to be like shit hitting the fan because this episode is way too like bittersweet and nice. Oh yeah. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they had a, they had a, they had a laugh around deodorant in this episode. We're we're not going to come out bloodless in the next one. No, it's going to be, it's going to be exactly what we all think it is, right? Like the end of the fall section. Like Ravagers and the truck getting jumped and that kind of stuff, I would assume. I don't know if there's going to be a tank sequence. Well, probably not. But like specifically, specifically, though, like the end of like Joel falling and landing on the pipe and that that's pretty much where we like end. Is this going to be a 12 episode season or is it going to be nine? I thought it was like nine episodes. 12. I, I thought it was 12, but I, I could yeah be wrong about that. Pretty sure it's 12. Maybe they'll do that in two episodes, but I feel like winter's going to be at least two episodes. I don't think we're going to see a a grave injury to Joel next episode. That maybe more like an episode five thing, but I guess it depends on, you know, are we going to get another bottle episode like this or, or two? Cause you know, how are they going to tell the left behind stuff? Yeah. It seems maybe a little too early for that. I think we have more, we, we need to establish more of Joel and Ellie you know, Ellie, obviously, spoiler alert, when Joel gets hurt, she would otherwise, at this point, really have no impetus to to stick around. She she would go into, you know, survival mode and be like, he's fucked. So we need to establish them a little bit more. I think there's at least two episodes before, yeah, he gets hurt because we've got like the hotel. We've got, you know, Ellie getting her gun and that being like allowed, that being encouraged, that like giving her her agency and that establishing their relationship, I think will be the important sort of the impetus like you said ej yeah you're right we're only just barely starting to see that like the the look that they shared in the truck when they were hitting the open road and like her moving the mirror which i was like this is such a specific like thing this had to have come from the game and i don't know i can't prove that but it just it just felt like such a such a thing that would be in a cutscene in the last of us so bravo if it's not, because they fucking nailed it. I have expected her to whip out a bad joke book. I found interesting, they they told this little anecdote about how the original intro to every episode was going to be like an open window. Like the game. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly it. And then, so they, I guess they had filmed a lot of these sequences of these open windows. So we got at the end of this episode. Thank you for mentioning that, by the way, because I would have forgotten. And I thought that like the pushback into the window and then the focus coming into the drapes was such a nice fucking touch for that reason just a little tip of the cap to like a key piece of iconography didn't even make that connection until you mentioned it (laughs) just to sort of wrap up the episode on like we obviously know they're in their that bedroom and and they sort of got this happy ending that a lot of people aren't getting in this new world and sort of seeing the truck drive off into the literal sunset and pulling back and, and sort of ending on their part of the story. It was beautiful. Something I took away from from those characters, Bill and Frank, was I always read through the, their whole, all the time skips, I, I read this relationship from Bill's naive perspective. I was in his shoes the whole episode and and Frank was was sort of the outsider. And I was always a little defensive even up to the very end when they're old and he's sick and, and the way he says, give me one more good day, cook the meal I want, do do these things the way I want you to. And obviously from his perspective, it's like, he's like, this is my last day on earth. Like you do this for me. But God, it just, it, it felt a little selfish to me, which is how I always kind of viewed Frank in this situation. 
you know, not considering how this was going to leave Bill. He was leaving him alone and leaving him to mourn and grieve. And, and I was just defensive for Bill. We think of these things conventionally as like black and white, right? And they, they got their happy ending and they were lo- in love. And I, I, I think it's more complicated than that, whether intentional or otherwise, much more representative of the show, like finding some kind of happiness in a very, very dark time. And it's not so black and white. They were able to tune out all the evil of the world and lived happily ever after. Like there were these strings attached and there were these things that sort of weighed down, you know, their relationship and how they existed in this world. And I had to kind of sit with it for a little bit. There are no happy endings. There's no, nothing's perfect. Objectively, this is very romantic, as Frank put it. Romeo and Romeo, as Lindsay put it. I don't know. Am I reading too much into the thing that like Frank kind of felt a little manipulative to the very end? Maybe a little bit, but to your point, it's illustrative of their relationship not being perfect because there is no such thing as a perfect relationship. Like Frank has flaws. Bill has flaws. Bill has very surface level sort of prepper flaws, but Frank is also outward to a fault like talking to strange people on the radio and inviting them into their compound is objectively not a smart or safe thing to do and bill (laughs) reasonably gets upset with him about that but they even mentions it like in that final scene where he says you know i've i haven't always had only good days with you like i've had my share of bad days and i just want one more good day and from frank's perspective the way i read it was i'm going to die and you're going to live on because you're still alive but from Bill's perspective, there was nothing else to live for. Like they had their run. They had as much good days as he wanted to have. And he was done. So you didn't want to live with like his main fear was Frank dying. And that was coming true. And that scene of him, you know, coming to realization, like waking up and like, God damn it. Why you got yourself up? You're not going to stay awake for this day. He's like, yeah, I'm going to stay up for this day. Like that was a really powerful and strong scene and getting just a, a sweet little montage of them hanging out and having another date night and the waterworks, you know, shooting off. It got really blurry for a while there. I don't know why. <laughs> you had a smudge filter on. I was, I mean, it looked God like a damn, David Lynch movie sobbing, sobbing. And I like my, my, I go through these like stages every time and like Tiffany always can like sense when the first one starts. Cause like my, my chest starts shaking, like my shoulders <laughs> start shaking and she like put her hand on my leg. She always puts her on my leg. I put my hand on her hand and then that went to like some silent tears start coming. And then I just, I fucking couldn't hold it back anymore. And he's like putting the ring on his finger. And I just like got literally like choked out sobs was like vocally. Well, why'd they wait so long to get married if they had rings in a boutique? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. God. I was like, oh, they must have like jacked that out of somebody's like drawer in the neighborhood that they just like went through and were like, well, I never thought we'd need these, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that our bill like smelted them. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like he just like melted down a bunch of like, I don't know. This is one of those moments where I think my experience was hurt by my expectations of the game. So even through all these emotional things, and it was emotional and yeah, you get a little misty and a being defensive of Bill, but also like expecting like, okay, well, Bill survives this and Joel comes back and they meet, they meet again. And it's obviously going to be quite different than, than the game. I did not expect them to, you know, suicide together. And so the whole time I'm sort of removed from really fully experiencing these emotional moments because I'm 
anticipating what should be happening or you know wait where where are they going with this it's it's different how are they gonna uh, you let your top brain get in the way uh, you know i still enjoyed the episode i mean i texted you right after we watched it chris i was like you did i know you're I, in bed but goddamn. <laughs> yeah and i waited till i waited till today i was too tired but i i didn't even address your point and i'm sorry for that I think that you're right. I think that Tiffany literally did not trust Frank at all. Like the whole first, and she's the more yeah. impartial party. Cause I'm like, Oh, I know that they're like an item. And she was like, this guy's fucking fishy. This guy's so fucking fishy. And then she like eased off a little. And then when he like went for the piano, she was like, this guy's, this guy's working an angle. He's working a fucking angle. Of course he is. He doesn't want to be sent off back into the woods after being in this safe compound and being fed steak and wine. He didn't want to leave. And then we grow to love him, but uh, for a lot of reasons that make him a, a, like a dangerous, frankly, like person to have around in a post-apocalyptic compound, like talking to fucking strangers on the radio <laughs> and like the things that he's advocating for make sense. Using our resources to to restore these dilapidated buildings. Yeah, it, like it makes sense in some ways, but it doesn't make sense in context of the show other than let me love it how it needs to be loved, which is fucking gorgeous. And like the softening and the development of Bill as a character instead of like um, the trap guy. And now I give you the car battery. It's the sa same thing I thought with Tess where I was like, they're making them three dimensional people. And Bill does change through the course of it that he softens. He gives Joel knows the gate code. He can write in shorthand in the letter like it's just the gate code backwards, knowing that no one else would know what that means. So like he's got the fuck like a key to his house. Like it's unheard of for this guy as we know him in the game. But now he's a person uh, and the anticipation of I literally as we're getting down to the end of it and he's like pouring the wine. I'm like, this is amazing. We're getting two episodes of Bill. Like, I'm so glad we're getting like more Nick Offerman. And I like literally I was I, I I am a horse with blinders on when I'm like riding the sled of a particularly like good episode of TV where like I'm just going to go where it takes me and then pulling the rug like that on me. It's like mother fucker. They reversed reversed me because when Frank tells Bill the plan and then they have the dinner and he brings the glasses out and the, and the toppers off the bottle already. I was like, oh, yeah, the pills are in there like he's going to suicide the both of them. And I knew it. And then when he pulls the pills out of the thing, I was like, they got me. Bill's not going to kill himself. Well, of course he's not because he has to meet Joel again. So I went through that roller coaster of like, like, oh, you, th you think you're being clever. He's going to fucking kill himself. And then being like, just kidding. I'm like, oh, that would have been interesting. And then he still does it anyway. And I was like, oh, you got me again. <laughs> like it, it, it just Talk about subtle playing with expectations because I think we're all we're on that same path where yeah, you know, Joel meets Bill. That's the story that's in the game. They haven't diverged much from the game in that aspect. And this is just his, this is a different backstory for Bill and Frank. Like it's not the Frank absconding. And then whether it's because he knows that he's infected and doesn't want to hurt Bill or whatever, but they wanted to just have a different story for Bill to have be a more three-dimensional character. And they still get the truck with a message to be the motherfucker that will keep yeah. everybody safe and like watching like just such a small, like a micro expression on Pedro Pascal's face and like super close up when he's reading that. And he just like, just squeezes in just a tiny bit of like, maybe I can still be the protector to someone, even though I fucked it up twice. And then he's like, all right, 
we're doing this. You're listening to me, but we're doing this. Yeah. And he's still having that internal battle because the first thing he does when he goes back inside is like, here's what's going on with my brother. This is why I'm going. This is like my intention. This is my motivation. And then Ellie digs a little more and asks questions. And then Joel says, no, this is not, I'm not, you know, I'm not bearing my soul to you. I'm just telling you my motivations. And, but there is that he gave way a little bit. He's opening up and using Bill and Frank as that sort of thesis statement of Bill being this closed off person and having nothing to live for, but living in spite of the world. Like his lifestyle is out of spite and Frank being this, maybe smooth talking, maybe a little bit shady, but in the end, just another person, like he's just a person who just wants to survive. And part of survival is not just living and eating, but it's also finding people around you and Frank showing bill that aspect of it. And that sort of dichotomy of their wishes and their whims is just like a really sweet embodiment of Joel and Ellie. And that just reflects perfectly on them. And also he's got nobody now. I like literally just occurred to me that like the people that Joel knows, the the list is now Tommy, like everybody else, everybody else is gone. They even took like bill this sort of friendish, you know, more smuggling colleague than anything. Right. This like weird kooky guy. (laughs) Yeah. And they, he, and he shows up expecting to be like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully they'll be able to help us out and fucking they're gone too. Like they've, they have steadily whittled every single person away down. And now the need to go get Tommy, besides the fact that he's blood, he is now he's it like blood family or otherwise. Like they, that is all he has now. That's crazy. I didn't even think about it. I think another another bottle episode could potentially be um or maybe not even like a full episode, but just like we'll we'll probably get backstory on uh Joel and Tommy at like throughout the the uh, infection and throughout them like J- Tommy joining the fireflies and they're sort of falling out because that's in, that's spoke of in the game, but I don't know if they really show it too explicitly. I don't really remember too much, but I, they can show it explicitly because show don't tell. Yeah, I hope we get an episode. I, I didn't think about that. Just of Tommy and his experience. Because Tommy ruled in the first episode. Like, I thought that performance was, like, really good of them being brothers. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. And obviously, like, later in the game, like, we meet Tommy and he's, like, making this new life with this this other compound, which is where, you know, Joel and Ellie end up after the events of Last of Us 1. But, again, spoilers, you know, for the end of The Last of Us. But when I beat that game... I was really feeling pretty ambivalent. I did not know. And part of it was because I, I missed some context that I later, you know, I, I discovered that that kind of changed how I felt. But but Joel gets Ellie to the destination and he comes to realize that they're they're basically, they're gonna kill her to like harvest whatever it is potentially about her her fucking brain that makes her resistant to this fungus. And he is grown so attached to her and has this love for her and he just cannot uh, uh, and I know the game kind of gives you this it's not really a choice the game still ends up the same no matter what choice you make but you either choose to go along with it and say like this is what she wanted and like you know how this this is the answer for humanity or you say fuck this and you absolutely waste everybody and the game forces you to waste everybody anyway and and, and save Ellie but at the end of that I was like man Joel is kind of a selfish dick. And that's, that, again, this is a story about humanity. People are complicated and people make bad choices for the people they love. Uh, if it means keeping them safe and, and servicing, you know, their own desires. But 
I don't anticipate feeling that way leaving the show. I'm going to be so much more attached to these characters in a way that even at the end of the game, I, I was like, ah, Joel, I know she was going to die, dude, but like the vaccine, man. We come to learn in, in the game that like Ellie was not the first uh, immune person they have tried to do this operation on. And it basically resulted in nothing but a bunch of dead people. And so it helps you r- rationalize in your brain as the player a little bit more to be like, well, of course we don't want Ellie to die if it's it's not going to save humanity. Which I think is a cop out. I agree. I seriously doubt that that's the way it's going to roll in the show. That it's like, right. well, we've tried it before, but this one might work. Absolutely not. Like this is like right. they, they, they I they're going to frame this. I think very very much like this is it. Like we're going to take her brain out. We're going to make a fucking a fucking cure. Really leave the audience with that with that choice. But again, we're going to be so attached to the characters. It's got to be like Daenerys in season eight. It doesn't matter how seated her heel turn was. Or Walter White throughout all of Breaking Bad. Right, exactly. They broadcasted Walter White and exactly who he was from the fucking first episode. And they did it so goddamn well. And yet most of us sat there rooting for that son of a bitch almost yep. until the very end. And on subsequent rewatches, you're just like, fuck this guy every which way the whole time. Yeah, and maybe that context of a rewatch, you know, will change how we view certain characters, but we're going to be so attached to Pedro Pascal by the end of this that we're like, do whatever you got to do, Poppy, you know? Build the stoke, build the hype cycle. Uh, It gives me something to look forward to when I get late in the week. I'm like, oh my God, I get to watch another episode of this show. I think it would have done a disservice to this episode if it was just part of the blur that you, you subjected yourself to when you inevitably sit down for four hours and watch four episodes of TV in a row until you start like dozing off or whatever. So I I like the week to week just so you can actually sit down, be focused, take it in, digest it and not just like shovel more into your face. I'm just so hurt by expectation. And Chris, you and I waxed about this at length, but I am just so sensitive to it. And I, I, on one hand, I love being a part of the recap culture. I've got all my YouTubers that I watch. I've got all my bloggers that I read after every episode of TV. And it really kicked off during the pandemic when everybody was really collectively experiencing pop culture simultaneously, which we have not had really as adults, early HBO days, Sopranos, things like that. And then it really took off with Breaking Bad. But by 2012, you know, binge culture and... And just the way social media evolved that there hasn't been a lot of these collective moments. And and the pandemic really brought that back where it was like from Tiger King to Michael Jordan to whatever it was, like everybody was experiencing the same thing. And I, I appreciate that. I like being a part of it. I also really hate when being a part of that builds these expectations that nothing can live up to. And it just leaves me being disappointed in that. Yeah, it's my fault in some way, but can't help how I am, you know? So binging just helps me get around that. It's also hard to block out the noise when people, and this is totally different, but, but my hero academia season five, people complained about how awful that season was. And I understand if you're watching it week to week, that's pretty rough. But when you watch 22 episodes back to back to back, you're like, that's fucking, that was a great season. I had awesome moments. Like I love these characters but yeah, going week to week, it it's it's just a different experience. And after ten years of binging everything that I consume, yeah, it's, it's just hard to adjust to that and uh, uh, fully appreciate things as they should be. Is there anything else y'all want to touch on before we uh, skedaddle, Nick? 
Yeah, no, you guys want to start uh, working on ordering our list? <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, I kinda, I'm not ready for it. Show I'm fucking don't. <laughs> Tomorrow we can we can dip dip our toes in and start start working on this. If we could get through like 25 games, I'd count that as a win. Oh, so so episode 100, ne- the next episode, we've already recorded part one. It is going to be Console Crusades top 100 games of all time. We spent f- well, we were sitting I think together for six hours. Uh, the other night, but but the podcast part one's about two and a half hours of us just adding games to the list, not not even ranking them, just getting games out there that we all kind of agreed on. We went through our cuts, so we have our list of 100. This is going to be a monumental task. Guys, I don't think I'm not that worried about trying to rank them. I think we just need to be Lucy. Let's just start start at the top. Like Let's just put like five contenders for number one. What do we all collectively agree could be number one? And then just sort of just start randomly throwing things around and just, you know, like Mega Man X obviously has to be above Plock. And then you just kind of start figuring in between and then you start looking and you just bounce back and forth. That sounds know? like absolute hell. Yeah, but that's, that's the only way we're going to get it done without it taking eight hours and just screaming at each other. I think we need to build the tension by going uh, bottom up yeah, but in chunks. You know, I think we can get the first 50 like I mean, first fifty, but like fifty-one through hundred, I think we can knock that out pretty quick. I think so because we're not going to be too picky about like, oh, is the sixty-one or is the sixty-two? It's just like, oh, is Plock better than NBA Street Volume Two or whatever? Right. Yeah. Like it's going to be those conversations and having like fun little banter about the games and what they mean to us. But then it'll start getting a little bit more heated once we're talking about is Super Mario Bros. Three better than Super Mario World? Right. Yeah, there will be there will be some interesting <laughs> conversations there. I swear to God, I'm taking a flyer on a lot of stuff that like I, I got my bitching and moaning done in the listing of things like I made my fucking Odyssey comment. If you fuckers try and put that in the top 10, I will quit this podcast. But come on, I, Nick's like, oh, we'll be litigating this in, in, in the future. So we don't have to be blowing our load on it right now. But I but I'm not like putting Mario Odyssey in my like bot tier just because I don't like it because I know that that's not conducive to where it's going to be ranked with two other voices that enjoyed it a lot and same thing with Wind Waker I'm like all right I've got a couple Zelda games on the list like where do I feel this sits and like that's a really quality franchise so like what does that mean and (laughs) I don't think anyone's gonna be happy with the top we'll all be hopefully we'll all be equally unhappy that's exactly it I'm already happy with the hundred I think it's a good hundred Hey, we never talked about the Whammy League. Is that do we want to like save that for later? Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So one, 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 one,